Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. I guess today is Hall of Fame songwriter Holly Knight. First of all, you wouldn't think it, but electric vehicles appear to be killing AM radio. For nearly 100 years, drivers have been listening to AM radio in their cars, but that could be going the way of the manual crank window and car ashtrays as electric vehicles begin to grab more of American market share. AM was already having a lot of problems, and even though there are over 6,000 stations, they used to be the backbone of music consumption and discovery all the way through the 90s. Most existing AM stations have moved over to talk radio or sports formats, though, and the average listener age is now around 57. It's gotten so bad that there are even a number of AM station licenses that went unclaimed in the last FCC radio auction. And that's almost unheard of. Still, there's 47 million people, or about 20% of American adults, that still listen to AM radio for about two hours every week, and most of these are in cars. The thing is, many new cars don't include AM radios, and for sure you won't find one in an electric vehicle. The reason why is electric vehicles generate more electromagnetic interference than gas-powered cars, which then disrupts the reception of AM signals and causes static noise and high-frequency hum. On the other hand, FM signals are a lot more resistant to interference like that. Some experts are saying that these reception problems can be overcome by shielding and filters and careful placement of electronic components, but most manufacturers really don't want to bother because they see that AM radio consumption is actually decreasing. When it comes down to it, this is really a shame for local radio, which AM radio serves best. Most AM stations are very low wattage compared to FM, and therefore they have a relatively small broadcast footprint. That being said, in times of emergency, AM radio can be critical at keeping everyone informed and safe. Still, the days of breaking new acts on a local AM station are over, And with the world now slowly turning to electric vehicles, AM radio's slow demise is going to be ever faster. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Everybody knows about the healing power of music, and when it works, it really works well, and here's a good example. You might not be aware that jazz chords can treat nightmares. There's a lot of people that suffer from nightmares, and it's not always a case of a few bad dreams. Nightmares are associated with poor quality sleep, which in turn is linked to a whole wide range of other health issues. The University of Geneva in Switzerland, though, decided they're going to see if they could do something to overcome this problem. 
So they had two groups of 36 people. And what they found was if they played a C69, so in other words, it's a C chord with the sixth note, which is an A, and the ninth note, which is a D, so it's a C with an A and a D, and they played this every 10 seconds during the REM portion of your sleep. The groups that received this, their nightmares went down from three a week to about one. In some cases, none at all. Even more promising, some even reported an increase in happy dreams. And it gets better. Three months later, the nightmares had risen slightly, but not all that much. So it just goes to show you that music can cure a lot of things in life, and nightmares appear to be one of them. My guest this week is Holly Knight, whose songs made up a good portion of the soundtrack to the MTV 80s with mega hits for Tina Turner, like The Best, Pat Benatar, like Love is a Battlefield, and Patti Smith, The Warrior. Holly has also worked with legends like Rod Stewart, Kiss, Hart, and Aerosmith. She has 13 ASCAP awards, her songs have won several Grammys, and in 2013, she was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Her songs have appeared in almost two dozen films and theater productions, as well as television shows like The Simpsons, 30 Rock, South Park, Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon, Stranger Things, The Voice, and Saturday Night Live, among many others. Holly just released a new memoir about her life in music called I Am the Warrior. During the interview, we spoke about getting into songwriting, the secret to song demos, how to know when a song is well-written, her view on collaborations, and much more. I spoke with Holly via Zoom from her home studio in Los Angeles. Let's start with going back to when you just first started in the business. You started playing really young, didn't you? Uh, I did. I, I started taking piano lessons when I was four, and I studied classical for 10 years. So I was, you know, uh, music was already my first language, pretty much. Wow. What was your first band? Was it Spider? Uh, my first real band was Spider, yes. I mean, I made some feeble attempts before that, but uh, they weren't uh, very structured, you know. How did you get into Spider? I did some background reading uh, on this, but I, I can't quite grasp how this happened. Well, it's in the book, um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you, I was, um, I'd been on the road for about, uh, from age... 15 till about, I want to say, 19, and I had left New York where I grew up and traveled around the country. And then I moved back to New York, and that's when I started thinking more seriously about what I was going to do with my life. So I, you know, basically went out all the time to clubs and networked. We didn't call it network networking then. It was just sort of going out and meeting people and and uh, just you know, trying to get myself embedded more into something that was the real music community, at least the local one, before I got to the next level, you know. And I met them at a, a club. I actually had a friend who uh, had been the drummer in Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review, and he introduced me. He was going down one night to see some friends of his, and two of the members that ended up being in Spider were there. And they were just sort of guest appearing with this other band, but they really had, uh, you know, aspirations to put together their own band. And that was Anton Fig and Keith Linton. And uh, I met them that night and we exchanged numbers. And um, 
Howie, the, the drummer's name was Howie Wyeth, and he just blurted out to Keith, he said, Keith, I know you're putting a group together, you should, you should get Holly, she's a really good keyboard player. And that's kind of how it started. And uh, he called me up the next night and invited me down to the loft to listen to some of their new material. And it was funny too, because I was just getting ready for bed. It was one of the few nights where I was actually gonna go to bed early, which for me was midnight. And he called up at midnight and said, do you wanna come and listen to some of our music? And I said, yeah, that would be great. What day were you thinking? And he said, now. So he came and picked me up at like 12.30 at night. And um, we ended up jamming after I listened to some stuff. And by the morning, it was like, do you wanna join the group? And that's really, that's how it started. It was very exciting. Were you writing right from the beginning? No. That's the funny part. I always had thought of myself as a musician first because I, you know, I was a pianist. And I used to sort of mess around with ideas, but I never really thought seriously about writing a whole song with lyrics and everything. And when I joined the band, they were doing that. You know, the 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 objective was that we wanted to write original material, we wanted to get signed, we wanted to be big rock stars, and you know, anything less was just unacceptable, you know? We were very driven. And uh, because they were writing songs, and I thought their songs were okay, but I mean, I wasn't like loving them. I didn't think it was gonna get us on the radio. And so I thought, well, what the hell, I might as well try writing because it couldn't be any worse than what they're doing and they're confident and they're writing songs. So I started, that's, how, that's really how I became a, a songwriter to begin with. I sort of stumbled upon it and then found out over the next year or so that I was actually pretty good at it. Were you writing by yourself or collaborating? I was doing both. I was collaborating and writing by myself and I think part of the collaboration thing was maybe just sort of the insecurity that I couldn't do it myself. And also because I was in the band and everybody was like, hey, let's try and write this together or, you know. So, um, but I, I was fine writing on my own. Uh, I actually liked it. I liked it better because even to this day, if I'm writing with someone and, you know, we're not at the same sort of, we're not on the same bandwidth or the same level, if, if you will, you end up sort of like writing a worse song because like for me, I'm too, I'm too nice to point out if I don't like something, you know, and I get too agreeable and it's like, it, that doesn't really serve the purpose of the song very well by doing that. And so I write a lot more on my own now, but I will say that I do, I do when I have a really good writing partner, I love the process of collaboration. Well, that begs the question that some people can't do that. They can't collaborate and, or they have a difficult time letting go of their ideas. So uh, how did that work for you? Because you, you must've developed that over time where there's a, a certain give and take and you know, you know how to do it better. I think it's really important. And if you're lucky, if you're lucky, you'll find some people that you have special mad chemistry with. So, um, I think it's really important to have a collaborator where you both bring something different to the table. I mean, if you're both really good at writing lyrics or really good at writing music, but you're lacking in the other area, it's a problem, you know? So I think the first person I wrote with where I really thought, oh my God, this is great. It's like this person is taking this to another level with me that perhaps on my own I wouldn't have been able to do. And that was my Chapman. 
And to this day, he's probably the best co-writer I've ever had. And he would no doubt say the same about me as well, because we wrote some really great songs together. And I've sort of spent the rest of my career trying to find other good matches. And, and every now and then, here and there, I do find them, but they're few and far between. And I realized that when that happens, uh, I'm happy to sort of take the, the more of the load. And I've almost taken on the role of sort of with a lot of young artists as mentor, which is what Chapman was to me, you know. But there's nothing for me. There's well, they're very different. Writing with someone and, and just being excited and knowing that they brought as much as you did. And I don't mean where you're standing there weighing and measuring who wrote what and all. I'm just saying the energy of it, you know, and that song would have happened without either one of you in that room, you know? Yeah. That's great. I also do like to write alone now because I just, I think I have enough of a direction and enough uh, experience and, and where I'm going in a song that I kind of delight when I can sit back and go, wow, I wrote this song myself and it's one of the best songs I've ever written, you know? Yeah. There were years where uh, the, the record labels would send a new band to me and it was kind of like songwriting 101. And I didn't like it because I would be doing a lot of the writing, which I didn't mind that, but they would be staring at their phones or just not really in, you know, just really not committed to the writing session. And I would look at them and say, is this something you would do? Is this, do you like this? Should we try something else? You know, to me, that's a different sort of mindset when it comes to songwriting, you know? How did the connection with Mike Chapman happen? Well, uh, again, I had been told about him. I was trying to find a producer along with everybody else in the band in Spider. And they really wanted another uh, producer named Eddie Kramer, which actually made a lot of sense because they, the three of the members in that band were South African and Eddie is South African. So they had that, that whole sort of, you know, expatriate thing going on. And in Eddie, Eddie, look, he did Hendrix, you know, you can't dispute that. But I think there are different kinds of producers. There are producers that are great engineers, and then they become producers. And, you know, with some bands like Hendrix, so you basically just sit back and let them rip, you know. You, they, you don't, they're not focused uh, so much on songs, per se. Although that's certainly, I mean, I'm a big fan of Hendrix, so I'm not taking away. I'm just saying that he was so brilliant. All you had to do was basically sit back and let him, like I said, let him rip. But I felt like songs were really important. I thought the only way you were going to get on the radio was to have great songs. And someone that I was dating, actually, who worked at the record plant and had been working with Mike on the Blondie records, had told me about him and said, listen, he's a great songwriter, too. So he brings that to the table. And so you've got double the ammunition, ammunition. And that's where I really sort of started following and trying to see how I could meet him. And we didn't have the internet in those days. So it was like our manager, who was a great manager, that was uh, Bill Coyne. He also managed Kiss. And most of the time he was focused on Kiss. So I was kind of left to um, see how I could find him. And then one day there was a party at a club that we were playing in, in New York called Tracks. And the Knack introduced me to him and said, this is Mike. They didn't say Mike Chapman, they just said, this is Mike. And I didn't realize it was him and he walked away to get a drink. And then the bass player said to me, uh, you know, that's Mike Chapman. He did our, or he didn't even say that. He just said, oh, he produced our record. And I said, was that Mike Chapman? And he said, yeah. And I was like, oh my God, excuse me. And I went off to find him and, uh, you know, I gave him a tape of some demos that we had just done at the record plant. And uh, he said he would listen to it. And that's kind of how it 
you know, there's a lot more details in it, but you have to buy the book. Yeah, yeah, right. Find out the real story. But that's how that's how I met him. And I was still living in New York at the time. So after doing two records, The Spider, um, I decided I didn't want to be in the band anymore. And I wanted to focus more on songwriting. And um, I didn't... Uh, feel that my efforts as a songwriter were appreciated in the band. It was, like most bands, very competitive. It's something I've experienced. When you're in a band and you're going to do a record and it's time to pick the songs, everybody's vying to get songs on the record, you know? And that's it gets very, very aggressive, competitive, and things like that. And it's something that I've experienced my whole career, like when I'm working with other bands and I step in. I mean, it's bad enough that they're competing with each other, but then all of a sudden... You know, this chick comes along to sort of get songs on a record that they're trying to get songs on it. You know, it was uh, never an easy situation. Well, let's go there for a second, because you were one of the few female songwriters there for a long time. And it couldn't have been easy considering the climate at the time that you were in. Well, actually, I was... When you say one of the few, in the beginning, I was the only one because there were other, of course, female songwriters, but they weren't in rock. They hadn't been in rock bands. They weren't working with rock bands. You know, there were other uh, one or two, but not a lot. You know, I mean, it's funny because when I got inducted into the Songwriting Hall of Fame in 2013, there had been 400 male inductees and 16 women. And of the 16 women, most of them were singer-songwriters, so they were writing for themselves. I was an independent songwriter, which made me an anomaly. And then on top of that, I was writing for rock bands, not only for them, but then I started writing with them. So for a while, I was the only one. And I'm not going to lie. I mean, I didn't mind because it sort of gave me a niche, you know. I, I liked being the only one. But there were a lot of things that came along with that that I didn't like. And... It turned out that whenever I would work with women, I just really bonded with them. Like we just sort of, we had this magnetic sort of attraction. It was like a girls club because there were, we were a rare breed, you know, and it's still going on. I mean, how many bands do you see with all women in them? Commercially successful, zero. Hi, maybe. I'm talking about an aggressive rock band that really plays your instrument as good as it gets out there. And I just, I'm producing a band like that right now, actually, called La Crush. It's all women, and they're, they're all sophisticated. They're, they're really badass players, you know. Let me ask you a question, then. Tell me about your demos. How extensive are your demos? Are you talking about the ones I make now or the ones I made in the 80s? Well, l let's start with the 80s. How produced were they? And the reason why I ask this is, for the longest time, Publishers especially would say, just give me guitar or piano and vocal because I can hear through it. I can hear the rest. And I always thought, yeah, sure, of course. You know, you, you can't do that. It's it's actually true that you can a really good song, that's all you really need. It's just a bass, vocal, and drums or a guitar. And in the beginning, when I was making my own demos for the band, that was okay because we were already signed. And so it was okay if they were a little shitty because we were just playing them to the record label. And because the record label that I signed to was Mike Chapman's label and he was a song person, he actually could hear past the, the, the demo itself. 
Now, back then, we didn't have the ability or the, we didn't have the funds to... The only way you could record something would be is if you went to a studio and you were paying a fortune by the hour and you were under the stress of, we've got X amount of time and we've got to get it right by then, you know? We didn't have the home studios and all the luxuries that we have now. Um, so when we were recording, I mean, we were on like... It was exciting when I think I got my very first multi-track little recorder and I could do like four different things on it. I can't remember what the make was. Probably a Tascam, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was a Tascam. You know, and then as time went on and things got more sophisticated, it went from that to DAT players where you could do multi-stuff. And then by the time I was demoing as a songwriter, well, if I was writing with Chapman, he would just take me in the studio and he had like, he had two 24-track studers. So enough said. But I, I ended up buying an Otari one-inch and I would I learned how to use everything. I was always very sort of, I was very much a nerd electronically where I knew how to operate things. And I'm so glad that I was that way because now I can, you know, I engineer my own Pro Tools session and I'm a ninja at it. You know, I'm really good at it, and, which is nice because anytime you can do something where you don't have to have an extra person and turn around and tell him, you save so much more time in the, you know, not having to translate and, and all that. And hell, I can go down at two in the morning in my underwear and, and, and engineer and write and do it. I, I don't really go out down in my studio at two in the morning anymore, but I did, you know? Yeah, yeah. So the demos that I did with Mike were really pretty rough. And I, I did an audio book, by the way, which is coming out the same time as the hardcover book on Audible. And I'm going to be putting some of those demos in the package. And they've never been heard before. I've never played them out publicly or anything. And I've got demos to the best, the Simply the Best. I've got The Warrior with Nick Gilder singing on it, who's my co-writer. I've got uh, Love is a Battlefield. On a lot of these songs, like I wrote Love is a Battlefield with Mike Chapman. He sung the demos, you know? Mm -hmm. And the vocals are not, I mean, he's not a great singer, but he, what he is great at is relaying the feel and the attitude and because he's not a great singer I, I always felt or we always felt that the singers like that it wasn't that polished and and they they sort of could imagine oh I could really sing this shit out of this and especially if it was for a, a woman like Benatar or Tina Turner it was always better to have a guy singing a rock tune and a woman picking up and sing that you know yeah I can yeah. sing that Steven Tyler song I can sing that you know so that really worked the thing that's great about the demos is that all of the ideas are there. It's not like they, you know, it's really interesting when you hear a song like Love's all the, the meat and potato, all the ideas are there, but the production on that song was quite different. But all the elements of what made the song great were there. You can hear it, you can hear it on the demos, you know. Then as time went on and everybody had to look amazing, then, you know, we got into like the digital world and all of a sudden all the like the, the all the stuff that made things sort of exciting and a little, you know, fucked up and stuff like that. Everything was being polished up. All those rough sawtoothed edges were smoothed out and you lose something in that. So then what happened was people thought that record companies, people made such complicated demos in the hopes that the record company would just buy their, them as a producer or buy the track. And then all of a sudden the track started becoming more important than the song itself. And I think that that translated into music that we listen to. I mean, there's a lot of great records 
that if you were to sit down and play them on just a guitar and vocal, they wouldn't translate well. And then there are other ones that do. That's really kind of when you can tell. If a song is really well written, it should be able to be played live. Someone sitting with a guitar or a bass and singing it to you. But, you know, I've even written songs like I, I had a group called Device. And so now we were in a very technical area and we had Fairlight computers and everything was sequenced. And we wrote a lot of great songs, but it was really based around a lot of programming that if I were to sit down, for instance, we had a song called Hanging on a Heart Attack, which musically was incredibly sophisticated. And I'm so proud of that track. But it's like if I were to sit down and play it to you on guitar, it's, I wouldn't say as a song, it's not as strong a song as if I were to sit down and say, play you the best, you know? Yeah. And that's the difference. So I started pulling back. This is the long answer to your question. But in the last five years, I would say that I really try and make much simpler demos now, almost just a piano and a vocal. And if the song is really that good, I think that's all you need, not only just for demos, but maybe even just the release of it, you know? Well, I mean, if you listen to uh, some of Adele's hits, there, there's not all that much going on. They're almost like demos. I wish, well, I wish she would write with me, but um, I wish she would stop doing so many sort of demos and slow songs. Like I, I kind of miss like the the early years when she had those songs like Rumor, Rumor Has It or um, Rolling in the Deep. She's doing a lot of ballads lately. Okay, let's talk about songwriting today. Because it's changed a lot in that songs are shorter, and they're shorter because there's no bridges, there's no, no intros, no outros, no solos. So they're built more for streaming. How do you feel about that? You know, um, <laughs> it's kind of disappointing. I mean, I have to say that there's a lot of things going on that I find disappointing. Um, and and it's it has a lot to do with the way the, the new generation is growing up at a much faster pace and intaking so much information that they're basically spitting out and not really absorbing. They're focused a lot on social media and I'm being forced to be fo focused on social media to get the word out, for instance, of my book or my new product. But I think the attention span is what just, I mean, if, if you look at TikTok, you know, it's like you've got to have, basically you could have a hit with just a chorus on TikTok, you know? Yeah. That's about as long as they're going to sit still long enough before they jump to the next exciting thing they're going to look at it on TikTok, you know. And it's, I think what's happened is it's 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 basically sort of castrating the art of songwriting. I just saw a figure yesterday. It said that the average viral song on TikTok is nineteen point five seconds. I know. That's what I'm saying to you. It's just like just just the chorus. It's, we used to say, get to the chorus, don't bore us, or don't bore us, get to the chorus. Yeah. As songwriters, it's like, you don't even have anything. You don't need to get from somewhere to the chorus. Now you just, here's the chorus, boom. Yeah, it starts right in on it many times, yeah. I mean, unless you lived in earlier times and you're, you're a little bit older, or quite a lot older, you're never going to understand what you're, what you're missing out on um, as far as the youth of America is concerned you know yeah yeah and i think that that's sort of how they process everything i mean i've been watching bill maher and it's sort of like it's so true that um people that post on say twitter or instagram think they're that that that's they're they're doing their part to be political 
know, and they're just sort of following each other like bots. Like, oh, it's like, what did that person say? What did that person say? Well, I, I'll agree with this one. I'll, and, and they don't really know what they're talking about. Let's talk about your book. How did that come about? Why did you decide to write a book? Well, I wasn't going to write a book, I, you know, because I made the choice to be behind the scenes. I'm not a household name or I'm hopefully I'm becoming a little bit more of one for the right reasons. But, you know, it's it's really no different than any other industry. If you're an actor, you're the one that everybody talks about. No one's talking, not no one, but a lot of people aren't talking about the screenwriter or the director, the producer, the set designer, you know. So, but I made that choice. I wanted to be behind the scenes. So... I wasn't sure I really had enough that was going to be interesting, but people kept saying, no, you have to, I, I, I would be sitting in a room and telling them a story and they go, oh my God, you have to do a book, you know, and then, and people asked me all these questions and it just kept coming back to me. So finally I thought, okay, I'll do a musical <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell the story through my music. And you know, I later learned that because it's such an expensive endeavor, I tried to do it for several years and I hired some writers and I didn't have enough confidence at the time to be the writer myself, which was again, stupid. It was like, I didn't have the confidence to write a book. Then it turned out that no one wanted to finance and then everybody was like, well, why don't you either hire other writers or why don't you write a book and put the book out first and then all else will follow, you know, like build and they will come. So that's what I did. And I started writing and I spent a few years writing and ripping it up and rewriting it. And then I met someone who helped me write a book proposal because there is an actual way to do it. I mean, you could self-publish and um, that's that's pretty much a crapshoot because you need the finances to promote the book. You know, again, like I didn't sign with a major, you know, one of the, well, actually I did because what happened was I signed with Permuted Press, which was a subsidiary, subsidiary of Post Hill, and Post Hill is distributed by Simon & Schuster. Mm. So I ended up on Simon & Schuster anyway. And I decided to just sort of bank on myself, and bet on myself, sorry, and do whatever it takes to sort of get, get the word out there that I have a book. And that's why I'm here today. And, <laughs> you know, it turns out that I really, really loved writing the book. And the more that I got people, you know, that I was working with, like whether it was my copy editor or my editor or, you know, I got an agent. That's another thing. It's good to get an agent. I got an agent. I wrote a book proposal. Um, those are things if, if you really want to be taken seriously. It's sort of like I would say the same thing in the music business. If you really want to be taken seriously, you can't just walk into a label or send something in. You have to either have a publisher or a manager or someone that has a reputation that will bring you in, you know, so... I know that sucks, and but that's the best way to, to do it, whether it's music or, or writing or whatever. But there's a way to do it. You just have to be really, really tenacious. You have to be really relentless, and you have to be, you know, you have to put yourself out there, which sometimes is an uncomfortable thing to do. I know for me it was, you know. And then, then when it came to the audiobook, I had people saying, well, are you going to read the book? Or, you know, because a lot of times they'll hire someone to do it. Now, I think when it comes to fiction, that makes sense to hire like an actor or a book reading actor that they really have that stuff down. But when it comes to memoirs, I think people are more interested in hearing from the person that actually wrote those crazy thoughts or whatever. And I thought, am I going to be able to do this? Like I've never done this before, but um, I did it. And not only did I do it, they were so happy with it. Um, I have very little things to fix. You know, you have this 
you, you have a follow-up where you do what they call pickup lines. And I think I had like 10 out of the whole book. So I really, boy, I love doing it so much. I would do it again. I was sorry when it ended. I downloaded a bunch of your stuff, by the way, um, this morning. And that was really helpful. <laughs> okay. Nice to hear. Yeah, no, it wasn't the songwriting. Um, it, it was, uh, although, no, I did read some of the stuff you wrote about songwriting, which I completely agreed with. But some of what had to do with, you know, as far as marketing a, a band or marketing a gig and, and things like that, you know, when you're in a band, uh, social media and then the top the hashtags and things like that. So you're staying, you're staying, uh, you know, up with the times and everything. And that's good. And I'm trying to do the same thing. I mean, you have to. Yeah, yeah, you do. Well, I can't wait to read your book. Actually, one last thing before I let you go, Holly. What's the best piece of advice that you ever received from somebody or maybe you just learned it along the way? I don't know if I learned it. I think I went through it and I would offer it because it's the dedication to my book, which is for anyone that's ever had a dream and been told no. This book is for you because I think... You really, you have to have a strong sort of center of, you have to understand that a lot of people are going to try and tell you that you're this, but you're not this. Or you can do this, but you shouldn't be doing this. And I'm just here to say that you have to just, you have to put blinders on your ear. And if you believe you have something that you have to say or express, just fuck it, go out there and do it, you know? And no, many, no matter how many times they close the doors, they close the doors on me. I just, I just kept going. And the other thing I would say as far as writing good songs, I would say, again, just get in your own box, which is outside their box, and just keep it real. You know, don't try to be current. Don't try and sound like someone else. Don't try to contrive it. Just write what you know and what you feel and keep it honest and and it'll be just a a much better piece of art by the way invincible is one of my all-time favorite songs thank you that's my one of my all-time favorite too really it really is yeah like if someone thinks it's the best no it's actually invincible i think it's got all the elements of what make me the songwriter that i am You can find out more about Holly and her book at hollyknight.com. That's Holly Knight, H-O-L-L-Y-K-N-I-G-H-T.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There, you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. 